Welcome to episode 93 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim and I'm joined today as co-host by Laura Fair, Professor of African History at Michigan State University. Peter Alegi is away. Our special guest today is Professor Lisa Lindsay, Bauman and Gordon Gray Distinguished Term Associate Professor at the Department of History at the University of North Carolina. Professor Lindsay received her Ph.D. in African History from the University of Michigan and since 1999 has been in Chapel Hill. She has received NEH and other fellowships. Many listeners will know her excellent edited collection, Men and Masculinities in Modern Africa, done with Stefan Meischer in the Heinemann Social History Series of Africa. She is also the author of a penetrating monograph in the same series, Working with Gender, Wage, Labor, and Social Change in Southwestern Nigeria. Uh, She has also published Captives as Commodities, the Transatlantic Slave Trade, and recently she edited with John Sweet a splendid collection of essays, Biography in the Black Atlantic. Her new book, due out next year from UNC Press, and the topic of her talk today is Atlantic Bonds, a 19th century odyssey from America to Africa. A very warm welcome. Thank you both so much for having me here. I'm very pleased to be on the podcast. Well, you assume going upstairs to give a talk here uh, to the history department on Atlantic bonds, a 19th century odyssey from America to Africa. But before we discuss this particular odyssey, could you give listeners a brief general picture of these bonds and how biography in particular can help connect disconnected histories? Sure. Well, the the bonds are actually connected to the odyssey. Uh, And so it may help with if I offer a quick little summary of the book and the talk which I'll give later today, they both center on the life of an African-American man nobody has ever heard of before, named James Churchill Vaughan, who lived between 1828 and 1893. In the 1850s, Vaughan set out to fulfill his formerly enslaved father's dying wish, that he should leave his home in South Carolina for a new life in Africa. With help from the American Colonization Society, he first went to Liberia. But he wasn't very happy there, and two years later, he accepted an offer of employment in Yoruba land in modern southwestern Nigeria with Southern American missionaries. Over the next four decades, he became a war captive, served as a military sharpshooter, built and rebuilt a livelihood, led a revolt against white racism, and founded a family of Nigerian activists. He witnessed wars that fed the Atlantic slave trade, the effects of foreign anti-slavery initiatives, the beginnings of missionary Christianity, the expansion of Lagos as a commercial metropolis, and the imposition of British colonialism. And he and his descendants kept in touch with their relatives in America. And this is part of what I find interesting about this story is that it enables comparisons across the Atlantic between Africa and the United States. And so the title of the project, Atlantic Bonds, to get back to the bonds, makes several references at once. On one hand, it's about the bonds of slavery. So this is a story of survival against the odds and prosperity and activism, even though the odds are seemingly endless. Um, 
And in this way, it reveals an Atlantic world in which slavery was nearly ubiquitous and freedom was always ambiguous. So, so Atlantic Bonds is about ties of servitude and their legacies. The title also invokes different types of bonds, of kinship lost, sought, or maintained across the ocean, of new commercial opportunities, um, of new communities created or joined in the aftermath of migration, and of political, ideological, and personal networks that connected far-flung locations. So this is about the kinds of bonds that people make mm -hmm. for themselves uh, in this transatlantic context. Could you, just to follow up a little bit, could you talk a little bit more about how biography helps to link these histories between the Americas and Africa? What, what purpose does the biography serve in this larger narrative? The biography does two things. One is narrative and one is more conceptual. First of all, I think there's a reason that biographies are the most popular kinds of histories at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon.com. People like biographies. And I think the reason that people are drawn to biographies is because they enable an emotional connection between a reader and a historical subject. We can empathize and we can put our, try to put ourselves in a person's place. And so part of what drew me to the Vaughn story is exactly that, that it, it creates an opportunity for empathy and for a personal connection between a 21st century person and this 19th century person. But the other thing that biography does is that it requires us to follow our subjects wherever they went. And so I didn't set out necessarily to write a transatlantic history, but because my subject traveled across these vast circuits, I had to follow him in his footsteps and then realize that the worlds that he was connecting were in fact connected. You know, his story makes it possible to see the connections that people at the time knew about, but that may be somewhat opaque to us now if we're not focusing our attention on these mm -hmm. individuals. And in many ways, I think you're bringing biography back in. Over lunch, we were talking about this. And uh, in part, I think uh, it's been encouraged by the development of digital repositories where historians can draw on the stories and start to knit together, weave together these long-lost personalities. But historiographically, I find it interesting because we, we go through these phases, particularly in African studies, African history, there was the turn from social history to cultural history. And so maybe we're witnessing a turn or a return uh, to biographies. But clearly, James Churchill Vaughan sounds a most interesting person. His life spanning South Carolina, Liberia, Nigeria, a remarkably resilient and enterprising person, also involved in warfare and in the first independent African church in, in West Africa. Um, so I'm wondering how did you stumble on his story and then elaborate his biography? I noticed he's mentioned in the early, uh, the early work by Samuel Johnson, History of the Yorubas, but you've uncovered all kinds of threads. Well, and I came to it the way many of us come to our subjects, which is just by happenstance. I thought that I would work on a project having to do with women and gender in colonial Nigeria, which was the subject of my first book. And I read a biography of a woman named Kofo Adamola, who was active for women's education in the mid-20th century in Lagos. And on the first page of this biography, it said that her grandfather had come to Nigeria in the 1850s 
as an African-American, and I immediately wanted to know more. I was very intrigued by this. So I was um, going to Nigeria that summer anyway to start preliminary research on this other project that I thought I was doing. And because Kofo Anamola had been a public figure, I, it wasn't all that hard to track down some of her relatives. She had recently passed away. And so I kind of just knocked on their doors <laughs> with the assistance of some friends, who mutual acquaintances. And then every place I went on that visit, I had the same experience, which was that a relative of hers would let me in and graciously sit me down and give me a nice cup of tea and then say, Everything you want to know is in this. And then they would go rummage in a cupboard and come back with a copy of Ebony Magazine from 1975. This is the African-American glossy magazine. And it turns out that in 1975, Ebony Magazine ran a story on the Vaughns, on their connections between the United States and, and Nigeria. And the Vaughn story in the Ebony Magazine version was utterly gripping. And according to the Ebony Magazine version, a Yoruba man was captured in Nigeria, what's now Nigeria, taken to Sierra Leone, where he was bought by a planter in Camden, South Carolina, named Vaughn, so that's how he got his name. And he married a Cherokee Indian woman, and they had a bunch of kids. And on his deathbed, this enslaved man gathered his children together and said, go back to Africa, the land of our roots. And one of them eventually did, James Churchill Vaughn. And actually in the Ebony version, his brother Burl went with him. Um, and they get to Nigeria and first they go to Liberia and then uh, James Churchill Vaughn goes to Nigeria. And there he sees people with the same so-called tribal marks, country marks on their faces as his father. And so he knew that he was in the land of his ancestors. And it's this perfect kind of roots style homecoming in the story. And I thought, this is great. This is my next book. I, you know, I've <laughs> got to follow up on this. And it took a while. You know, I was doing some other things, and so, but I started little by little working on this. And one of the trails led me to a genealogist in Camden, South Carolina, who was distantly related to the Vaughn family. And she showed me a family Bible that had all of the listings of the, of the relatives. And that's when this beautiful story from Ebony Magazine began to unravel, which is that she showed me that James Churchill Vaughn's father was not in fact a Yoruba man captured from today's Southwestern Nigeria, but had been born in Richmond, Virginia. And sure enough, other research I did later on substantiated that too. So it wasn't really likely or possible that he had had the Yoruba facial scars. That, and so James Vaughn hadn't you know, found his relatives when he went back to Nigeria. And I was devastated. This great story that I was going to write, I was already imagining the movie, um, was <laughs> not, not panning out. But then it began to dawn on me that this was actually better as a historian's story than the more dramatic version. If the dramatic version had been true, the Vaughns would have been utterly fascinating, but also utterly unique. That's the only time anybody had ever gone back to Africa and seen their father's tribal marks and been reconnected with family broken up by the Atlantic slave trade. But without the country marks, then here's this ordinary guy who goes to Nigeria and makes a life there and founds a family and has tremendous success. And so it opens up the possibilities of mobility and affiliation across the Atlantic for ordinary people. 
And it raised the questions for me. If the father didn't come from Yoruba land, why did his son go there? And if Church Vaughn was, in fact, an outsider in southwestern Nigeria, how did he integrate so well that his descendants became important leaders? And if the story of the country marks wasn't literally true, then where did it come from? So then I had all of these intriguing questions that I felt like, led the way to larger histories than if simply the country mark story had been true. So then I started doing lots of needle and haystack research in the United States and in Nigeria and then in Britain and in Liberia as well, and following genealogical clues and looking at correspondence of missionaries and newspapers and government documents and all sorts of things like that. You know, the problem being that Churchill Vaughn, like many of our subjects in African history, is not George Washington. He didn't leave lots of papers. He didn't leave an extensive documented trail. There's no diary. Um, but many of us have to deal with these kinds of problems. And yet we persist because this kind of work is valuable. We don't just want the histories of people who are well-documented. And so it turned out to be possible to piece his life together through many different kinds of stories, and also with help of Vons in Nigeria, and also now far-flung into different parts of the African diaspora. Now, in your forthcoming book, you offer a really amazing analysis of the similarities and differences in southern Nigeria and the southern United States in the 1870s. Could you highlight for our listeners some of the key similarities and poignant differences of those seeking to remake their lives in the aftermath of slavery? Sure. So the book is a chronological narrative of Vaughn's life, beginning with his parents and continuing through his descendants, and one section focusing on the 1860s, 70s, and early 80s does compare Church Vaughn's life in Lagos and that of those of his surviving relatives in South Carolina in this period. And in fact, there were some similarities between Lagos and the American South in this period. So this is the era of Reconstruction in U.S. history. In both places, slavery had been outlawed as, as part of the colonial imposition in Lagos. And so and in both places, the abolition of slavery is coming through from outside initiatives. And in both places, former slaveholders equivocated on implementing this policy so that former masters in both Lagos and the American South were trying to narrow the scope of change, while ex-slaves were trying to assert their freedom through things like mobility or getting into new economic opportunities, redefining their social relations. Kristen Mann has written a lot about this for, for Lagos. But the big difference between the two was the ideological context of white supremacy. So in South Carolina, former slaveholders and their supporters were trying to restrict the freedoms of the previously enslaved. Um, and in their vision, all people of color should be relegated to the lowest rung of the economic and social ladder by violence, if necessary. So previously free people of color like the Vaughns, their lives were difficult before the Civil War, but afterwards it got even worse mm -hmm. as their distinctive status and opportunities were eroded under the pressure of a generalized white war on all black people. But in Lagos, there was a different situation. Colonial rule didn't bring an influx of Europeans at this time. White supremacy was not flourishing quite the same way. And the expansion of trade in the early colonial administration created new opportunities for indigenous and diasporic Africans, 
many of whom, in fact, were among the slaveholders resisting British-imposed abolition. Church Vaughan, as far as I can tell, did not own slaves himself, but he prospered in the social and economic space between Lagos's most elite merchants and its most downtrodden workers. He and other newcomers to Lagos, and there were plenty in this period, were largely free from extractive patronage relationships. They were free from the personal violence that he had been subject to in an earlier period of his life when he first got to southwestern Nigeria. And they were free to make a good living. And so in this way, Vaughn had opportunities in colonial Lagos that his relatives in South Carolina no longer had. And I want to make a point, actually, in this connection that should be obvious but sometimes needs repeating, especially to our colleagues in other fields of history, which is that African and American history unfolded simultaneously. So contemporaries and historians have tended to imagine sometimes that African developments have taken place in a different time context than in the United States or Europe. And in fact, the Africa diaspora concept has often rested on two different approaches to time, looking back you know, to a moment in which the enslaved were forcibly separated from their African communities, and then looking forward to some kind of hoped for restoration. But it never takes place in the moment of time. Um, and similarly, 20th century approaches to international development conceptualize Africa as backwards, so chronologically behind the so-called West and its attainment of economic growth and personal liberties. But the thing that following somebody like Vaughn shows us is that struggles over slavery and aut autonomy both spilled over national borders and occurred simultaneously in disparate places. So by the time he was well-established in Lagos and continuing through the era of his grandchildren, Vaughn and his family on both sides of the Atlantic knew that West Africa was not behind. And in fact, their prospects there were arguably quite a bit better than in the United States. These Atlantic comparisons remind me that you've come to MSU as part of a series of guest speakers on the broad topic of transnational histories. And this was the topic of a keynote um, speech that I heard in Botswana two years ago by Jane Carruthers. But uh, I wonder if you could briefly comment on some of the methodological challenges of doing transnational research. You're already starting to address this in part in speaking to these different yet entwined historiographies that, as you just said, they're actually happening at the same time, but sometimes we don't want to accept that. What about these methodological challenges of doing transnational research? It's difficult, and it's especially difficult for grad students. I originally thought I would do a transnational project such as this as a PhD dissertation, and I got as far as writing one article on Brazilian ex-slaves who came to Lagos, and I realized that my life would be a lot <laughs> easier if I did not take on a transnational project as a dissertation. And so, as you say, we have to deal with historiographies coming out of different traditions. We need to get some expertise on different parts of the world. And we have to have the resources to be able to follow our sources or go to archives in multiple different places. Gene Allman had an article in the American Historical Review a few years back, in part about the methodological challenges of transnational history. And she made the sad but, I think, true point that Transnational histories tend to be monopolized by people from the well-funded West because some of us have access to research funds that are not available to people in other academic settings. 
And so it's a certain kind of luxury, in fact, to be able to pursue this research. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult. It really, it, it takes a lot of, of human and material resources to do it. And, and I was saying earlier, I think it's valuable because many, many historical subjects, people in history didn't live contained within national boxes. And in fact, what we even think of conceptually as the nation state is a product of history. And so it, it's anachronistic to consider uh, histories that fall within the nation state for periods of time when the nation state wasn't even a relevant politically operative category or a category of identity. So in some ways, we do truer histories if we don't confine ourselves to histories of na within nations or within states, particularly since people have migrated for a very long time. Uh, and even when people themselves are not migrating, ideas and things are migrating. So there are lots of good reasons to do transnational history, but we come up against methodological difficulties that are real. Thank you. A lot of your earlier work is focused on gender. And it occurs to me that in many families, it's often conceived of as being women's work to keep relations and connections up with extended family or distant relatives. In the case of the Vaughns, did you find any particular gender dimensions to the maintenance of these transatlantic links? And were there any apparent gender differences in terms of how people communicated or how often they reached out? Or maybe there are motivations for maintaining these connections across time and space? Well, the article in Ebony Magazine that I mentioned earlier had at the beginning of the article a big color photo of two women, one from the Nigerian side of the family and one from the American side of the family. And it really focused around these two women who at that moment were the key players in keeping the transatlantic family alive. And I think that's no coincidence. So to come back to the story I was telling earlier about the country marks that were featured in this Ebony article and that I think didn't in fact exist, I did a bit of a genealogical approach to that story and came to the conclusion that the country mark story itself came into being in the 1920s. And I don't have time and I won't try the listener's patience by going into the, all the details of how I know this and, and what exactly the story is. But it emerged when Church Vaughn's daughter, a woman named Ida Arabella Vaughn Moore, Moore was her married name, came to the United States in the 1920s to put her daughter in, in Vassar College. This came on the heels of an earlier visit a couple of years previous by a female cousin who had been brought to Lagos to visit them. And the female cousin was a hairdresser from Harlem who comes to Lagos and is treated in the lavish high style of the prosperous Vaughns at this moment, driven around in their motor cars, taken to what the press calls a magnificent family villa, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the visit gets returned when Mrs. Moore comes to the United States and she visits the families, which is, is now dispersed between Camden, South Carolina, Chicago, and New York. And some of these people, especially the ones who had gone north, were pretty well-educated professionals. But she goes to Camden and it, white supremacy is on full display in 1920s Camden. And even in Chicago, she was staying with a cousin who had taken in her own father-in-law, that is to say the cousin's father-in-law, who was a refugee from the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot, which had taken place a couple of years previously, the largest race riot in U.S. history. And so what this 
what Vaughn's daughter sees when she comes to the United States is a situation much more difficult for people of color than anything she has experienced, even in colonial Lagos. And that's where the story emerges. So it, people who were connected with that visit are the ones that then started passing on the story of the of the country marks. And it, it, it makes its way through the family in Chicago, in New York, and in Camden, all from this side. And I really think that this emerged as this woman from Nigeria is trying to reinforce the bonds of family with her cousins who are separated from her by very real circumstances, by very real material circumstances. And so that's right there being transmitted by women and produced in the context of relationships between women. But then the story gets passed back and forth again in the 1950s and 60s, leading up to it being repeated to the Ebony Reporter in 1975. And the way it gets passed back and forth again is by visiting relatives from Nigeria to the United States and the U.S. to Nigeria, all of whom are women, uh, who are going for professional activities or education and who want to see their relatives along the way. Um, and that keeps the story alive. And in fact, it was a female informant who told it to the female reporter from Ebony in 1975. So I don't know what all of this says about gender, but it is a story that is kept alive by the women in the family, as far as I can tell. And I do think it's interesting on a theoretical level to think about diaspora as family. We have books like Saida Hartman's Lose Your Mother, where she is really grappling with natal alienation experienced by African Americans in the aftermath of, of slavery, of enslavement. That the process of enslavement is one of separating people from their communities and their kin. And in this book, Lose Your Mother, Sayida Hartman meditates on this and then goes to Ghana and recounts her own attempts to find kinship in Ghana. And she's very frustrated with this. And I, I think there's a fairly well-developed literature about African-Americans going to Africa looking for something, some kind of psychological wholeness, and being disappointed. So there, there's a conceptualization of the diaspora as a family that has been broken apart. And then people try to kind of put it together and the, the differences in outlook and experience of people and communities with two different histories on different sides of the Atlantic make this difficult. And so that's kind of one conceptualization of diaspora as family. And what we have with the Vaughn story is a different one that is also conceiving of the diaspora as family, but on a much more intimate, local mm -hmm. scale. And one of the things that the American Vaughns highlighted is they know who their relatives in Africa are because they're in their family, and they've seen them at family reunions. And so in the Ebony article, for instance, an African-American woman who's featured in the article says, as a kid, we always knew that Africans weren't people who lived in jungles, weren't wild creatures, because they were in our family, and mm -hmm. we knew that we were all part of a great civilization. So it's this sense of, um, of, of the immediacy of family, doing the work that people like Saida Hartman are hoping can be done more on a larger scale. That doesn't give us a very specific answer, but I think that's some of the things that this story allows us to think through. Well, very briefly, because you very soon have to ascend the stairs to the History Department seminar room and, and perform it again, <laughs> but would you hazard uh, a brief comment on how James Churchill Vaughan fitted in to the uh, Nigerian or Yoruba masculinities, because following on your your wonderful edited collection, 
path-breaking work in African masculinities. He's such a fascinating character. He's not only involved in in the remnants of slavery, but he, he's involved in warfare. This uh, in in the Yoruba civil wars. He's, he's he becomes an artisan, a particularly skilled artisan. He becomes heavily involved in the Baptists and then the independent churches. How does he fit into? changing um, conceptions or appearances of masculinities? I know that might be a difficult question. But it's a good question. And I think he very self-consciously didn't, which is not to say the same for his sons. But he talked about himself in only a couple of places that have survived over time. And one is in a letter he wrote to some missionaries in the 1870s, where he is remarking on the fact that there had been no more missionaries coming from the United States during the Civil War and after the Civil War. And he says, my fellow Baptists here have asked me to write and request a missionary. But I'm not from here. I'm a native of Camden, South Carolina, and I don't believe that we need white missionaries to come. And if you think that it's appropriate, go ahead and send us a missionary. And if not, know that we'll be fine. But the way he sets this up is to say, I am not from here. This is not about me. And in other places as well, he distinguishes himself as being different. So he wore Western clothes. He clearly spoke Yoruba, but probably not at home. And where I think he's really different from the idealized notions of Yoruba masculinity in the 19th century is in his lack of interest in polygamy and lack of interest in slaveholding. And so the ideal of the big man with lots of people around him is something that he seems to have adopted only in part. He had a number of apprentices, many of whom took his name. He helped them get their start in life. He had um, children. He had various dependents and clients of, of various kinds. But I'm fairly certain that he did not own slaves, even though that's was a common strategy for somebody in his position at this time. And not only did he only have one wife, but he married a woman who was probably an ex-slave herself, so who came with no family. And so he had no family, she had no family, he has no in-laws that he has to deal Mm -hmm. with. And I think that this was a very conscious strategy of trying to avoid entangling alliances Mm -hmm. um, for somebody coming out of an American context in which freedom means autonomy rather than an African context in which freedom means being embedded in a community and having people who are engaged in obligations of reciprocity. So in that sense, I think he's very unlike the typical portrayals of Yorba masculinity at the time. And his two sons are interesting because, as in many families, two sons turned out radically different. Mm-hmm. One um, was a very upstanding Christian, very strong. They were both strong in the church that Church Vaughn himself founded, but one made much more of a big deal about it, only had one wife, married her in the church, was a fine upstanding citizen with his father's approval, and the other one had three wives, had lots of houses, lots of children all over the place, was a sportsman, was sort of a bon vivant in town, and was much more of like a Yoruba big man. And Church Vaughn never said anything that I've seen specifically disparaging about this the second son, but he left almost his entire estate to the first son. 
Well, connecting the, the winding uh, but crisscrossing pathways of history. Thank you so very much, Lisa Lindsay, for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure talking with you both. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.